we have some more news from the Bardic College. The first rules that let people survive after they dropped to zero hit points appeared in the AD&D 1st Edition DMG. If you are at three hit points or less, you are still alive, but you kept losing hit points until you hit negative ten and died. If you reached negative six or lower, the DM could just decide to maim your character. That's a not very nice move, Dungeon Masters out there. Please, please, unless you're playing, I guess, old school, don't do that. Plus, your character was incapacitated for a week without being able to get back any hit points. Best case scenario, one of your buddies carries your body out of the dungeon. Worst case scenario, your friend just watched Weekend at Bernie's and decided to bring you into that encounter with the local Mind Flayer. I wonder what happens when a Mind Flayer mind blasts a corpse. Maybe you get eaten? Maybe you're a dessert? These are good questions. And now we present to you Thacko with Advantage. Welcome to Thacko with Advantage. We're two friends that have been playing D&D a long time. While we both love lots of other RPGs, D&D likes to make us drop everything else in the hobby for the last month, even when we aren't playing. Hi, I'm Ange, and I've been gaming for over 35 years. In 2014, I started writing for Gnome Stew, and I've been running the Gnome Cast, the Stew's podcast, since 2017. And then in 2021, they made me head gnome. It's, it's, it is what it is. And I'm Jared, the review gnome at Gnome Stew. And I've been gaming since roughly 1985. Not continuously, unfortunately. In addition to writing reviews at Gnome Stew, I've got my own site, whatdoiknowjr.com, where I write additional reviews and opinion pieces on a variety of RPGs. Today, we're introducing yet another new segment. Today, we're looking at good news of a magnitude that we hope we'll never have to use this segment again. Please. So here we go with calm emotions. Breathe in and breathe out. You are now relaxed. All right. It's been two weeks since we recorded, and wow, has it been a momentous two weeks. Right after we recorded, Watsi released a new statement and a new OGL draft. This one was maybe not as bad as the original one. It was less onerous about fan-made projects automatically being open to Watsi using them. And it was a bit more clear about who owned what in what was probably the most interesting aspect of that release. Watsi put several of the core mechanics into Creative Commons, although they reserved things like classes, spells, and monsters for an SRD. But they also said they wanted to get the community's opinion on this version of the OGL in a manner similar to the playtest documents that they have released in the past. Originally, the evaluation period was supposed to last until the middle of February, but in a surprising move, on January 27th, Watsi said they already had significant feedback that led them to decide to add the entire 5th edition SRD into Creative Commons and announced that they weren't going to touch the current OGL. I personally think they have done a tremendous amount of damage to their goodwill, and I think anybody that is looking to decouple a project from Watsi's potential future business decisions is doing something completely understandable. That said, I also think that what they did, saying that they won't touch the current OGL and putting the entire 5e SRD into Creative Commons, is probably the biggest thing they could have done to start the process of repairing the damage that they already did. About the only additional thing I would have said they could have done with this is to maybe throw the 3rd edition SRD into Creative Commons as well. But other than that, I think they made a massive move here. I would be quite happy if the next few months are quiet on the RPG drama front, but that's probably a lot to ask for in our modern life. I agree that this has been an incredible amount of damage done to the D&D brand over the past month, uh, but stating that they would leave the current OGL alone and releasing the SRD under Creative Commons 
is probably the best thing they could have done. I am not a lawyer. This is a comment that has been said a lot recently, but uh, my understanding <laughs> is the version of Creative Commons they released it under is the best version. There's legal stuff involved. There were different Creative Commons they could have released under. This one was the best one. I believe most of the companies and designers that announced they were moving away from the OGL with either their own new games or putting their products under the umbrella of another license is probably going to continue. This will weaken D&D as a brand, but is highly unlikely it will quote-unquote kill D&D into nothingness. If the game can survive the chaos of the death of TSR in the 90s and the ill-fated choices of 4th edition in the late 2000s, it can survive this. To sum up, I am hopeful that this sparks a wave of new games that will invigorate the hobby with creative and exciting designs and ideas. While no one has rivaled D&D's dominance in the hobby, especially in modern times, the more games available, the better it is for everyone. From the moment I was introduced to a game other than D&D in the late 80s, I have been enthusiastically polygamous. I have a great passion for many games that are not D&D, but I am happy that 5e has been in my life as an old, dearly loved friend. Well said. Moving on, after we look at the games we're running in the campaign journal, we'll be looking at healing, death, and resurrection in campaigns. And then we'll have some recommendations of D&D-related comment for you to check out in our downtown research segment. It sounded like I said downtown, but whatever. Let me just finish up this campaign journal. Back to the jungles of Zendrick. For my last session, we had a full group, uh, and we picked up right where they left off in the last session. They had just finished a random encounter with a bunch of Gricks that they completely waded through with no problem. And they still wanted to do a long rest because they'd been exploring, it was a long day, so on and so forth. I made them wait on the mechanics of the long rest until this session's for reasons. This was something I'd actually been planning for quite a while with the campaign, and I'd hinted at it to the players a couple of sessions earlier, when I gave Vandreth a dream of running with a wild creature. I asked him what that creature was, and being a good Valinar warrior, he declared that it was a steed. So it became a steed in the dream. As he and Perrin were on watch, a mystical-looking horse stepped out of the jungle, looking only at Vandreth. Perrin, being the smart one, rolled a successful arcana check and realized it was a Valinar animal, uh, mystical creatures that bond with a single person of their choice. Each of the Valinar animals host the soul of a druid that fought against the last of the giant kings during the fall of that empire millennia ago. I knew I wanted to do this the moment I knew one of my players was making a Valinar-related character, and I saw the Valinar animals in the book. It's such a good concept, and it's a nice way to give somebody a companion animal without it being part of their class. The player named his steed Fianon. Though in the fiction of the game, that was always her name. She just told it to them. This actually took, this whole scene took an unexpectedly decent size of the session as each player roleplayed a reaction when their character woke up at various times to realize that there was a now a slightly sparkly purplish horse in the party. <laughs> I believe Cargill was the next one to wake up for the next watch and he was just like, what? Okay, fine. This isn't the strangest thing I've seen him do. <laughs> Much amusement was had by everyone in the party as they realized that Fiannon was going to be the brains of the duo, since Vandreth had an 8 intelligence and Fiannon had a 10, so this is going to be fun. <laughs> After that, they headed off to do their exploration, uh, and through their roles I decided that they noticed the remnants of an ancient road in the foliage. So of course, they decided to start following said ancient road 
in the foliage. Well, most noticed that Vandreth was still too busy talking to Fiannon. <laughs> on the road, they noticed some markings along some rock walls. No one rolled particularly well, um, but they were able to glean that the symbols that reference snakes, and it wasn't clear if it was a warning or an invitation. Maybe both. This is leading into the whole people go disappearing in that region plot thread. I say this knowing at least one of my players listens to this show, but I think it was pretty obvious where this is going anyway. <laughs> eventually, the road started to become a bit more distinct, and eventually they saw a bridge up ahead that crossed a ravine with a waterfall cascading into it. As they scouted, I mentioned that the area around the bridge smelled like rotting meat and was covered in beetles. They had a few chances to make perception checks, but never quite rolled well enough to catch a glimpse of the rot troll that was making the bridge its home. <laughs> they approached the whole encounter kind of like a puzzle, thinking that they just had to get around the swarms of beetles and rotten meat. So they were a bit taken aback when the troll pounced on them while they were crossing the bridge. This is a fight I've had planned for a little while, uh, and I discovered something interesting. When I was setting up the encounter in Shard, I realized that the difficulty was showing differently in the VTT compared to how it showed on D&D Beyond. Thinking this was a bug, I went to Shard's Discord and asked about why it was so drastically different. See, the raw troll was CR9 and the swarms were each CR1 half. D&D Beyond said that this encounter of one rot troll and four swarms was deadly, but Shard calculated it as easy. Well, which is it? Turns out that D&D Beyond and Kobold Fight Club, because I checked there too, don't follow one thing that's noted in the DMG about calculating encounter difficulty that Shard does do. If there is a drastic level difference between the creatures in the encounter, you're not supposed to count the very low CR critters. So D&D Beyond and KFC were adding in the multiple swarms to the difficulty and multiplying it because there were four of them, yeah. while Shard was completely ignoring them because they're not supposed to be enough of a threat to challenge the players. And they're mostly right. The swarms were mostly speed bumps and a distraction. It let the Rot Troll actually pose a reasonable threat to the party instead of being the immediate focus of all their firepower, though, which is what I was looking for. Another thing I did with this encounter is I set up lair actions. Um, Jared had pointed me to a fantastic book called Home Field Advantage, which offers a bunch of ideas on lair actions to give a wider variety of creatures. Um, I use the ones for the Rot Troll to spice up this encounter a little bit more, and I think it worked well. Um, I'm probably going to use more of these when I set up other future encounters. Yeah, I really like that book. I believe it's available on Dungeon Masters Guild. Um, yep. So it's you can find it there. And it's got a lot in it, a ton of lair action ideas for a huge variety of creatures rather than just the epic monsters that usually get them. In the end, they beat the rot troll and found his stash of treasure along with some more snake signs. This time, Sax rolled well enough to realize that they the signs were warnings from other drow clans to avoid this area because of something snake related. Dun, dun, dun. I feel special because I knew that whole mount thing was coming up for... Probably longer than the players did. Yeah, yeah. All right. So in my campaign, in our Midgard game based in the uh, Marodi Empire, all the PCs were in the same place at the same time. Yay! So the PCs um, have basically two missions in front of them. One, they could use the planar token that they received and start trying to free Lady Iyer, who is the Valkyrie that our Asimar is descended from. Or... They could start exploring the uh, excavated temple that uh, Mazarum, the dwarf cleric's friend, has been asking them to help out with. 
all of my players decided that planar mis- missions are too risky at seventh level. <laughs> I don't know why they get that impression, but they decided to uh, explore the temple. Uh, Pontus is a minotaur that is Mazram's friend. Uh, he is an archaeologist that they have known for some time. And he briefed them on the excavated temple when they arrived at the site, which was about half a day outside of town. The temple was constructed to a death god, and there is an altar that he strongly suspected was a construct. The altar was indeed a construct, and it had an incomplete litany uh, carved onto its chest. And Mazarin was able to complete the litany, um, which matched a litany to his god, and the construct did not animate and beat them all to a pulp. And the passageways to the lower section of the temple opened up for them. So they made their way down to the lower section of the temple, and they found this section that was all filled with the souls of the dead. They weren't an individual monster or a swarm. From a game standpoint, it was basically train. It was a special effect. Yeah. If they started their turn in a square that was inhabited in this well of souls, they would um, take cold and necrotic damage. So when they entered this area, a grave knight, which is not a death knight, because it is legally distinct from a death knight, because the death knight is not in any SRD. <laughs> a grave knight uh, appeared and asked them if the PCs wanted to challenge him for control of the temple. And the grave knight, you know, because he was standing watch for this temple, explained that this is a temple to death, big letter D, more so than it was a temple to any specific god. Multiple masks of death have contended for control of the temple over the course of time. Masks are a concept from Midgard where gods with similar portfolios in different regions and pantheons may be expressions of the same god. I wanted to kind of play with that idea a little bit more here. So the PCs defeated the Grave Knight and Mazram could claim the temple by attuning to the throne. Before Mazram had a chance to do this, their friend Pontus arrived and begged uh, Mazram to dispose of the trap souls to help him drive the Marathi out of Akilon. Now, when this happened, my brain went, wait, how does Pontus know <laughs> that we could direct the souls to do something? But I never had a chance to actually say that out loud in the game. But like that thought did occur to me. I'm like, wait, he knows an awful lot about what these souls can do for somebody who has never been down here. Because Pontus didn't show you all the things that he translated on the upper floor. <laughs> <laughs> Mazram's goddess is the goddess of death, Ereshkigal, and her consort was Gugalana, the bull of heaven, who died because of the sky god Anu. And this is all Sumerian-related mythology here. Pontus, turns out, he is actually descended from Gugalana. This will become important in a moment. When the PCs <laughs> start talking to Pontus, our knightly friend, Marin and Kazina attempted to, you know, explain that maybe setting loose a bunch of undead to drive the Marodi out of this region would cause unexpected harm to people. And basically it was kind of interesting because Marin was more than willing to actually point out that, yeah, the Marodi empire has done some bad things and maybe it wouldn't be the worst of things to have a city where some of the people could come for, you know, refuge from some of this, but, you know, unleashing a bunch of undead to do it may not be the best way to do it. Pontus didn't necessarily listen to that argument, but Pontus did listen to his friend Mazarum when he basically said that, that, you know, this isn't, he, especially as a cleric of the God of Death, this wasn't something he was willing to do, you know, and this wasn't the way to go about making change. Pontus was willing to listen to them, but Pontus, as a descendant of Gagalana, ended up becoming possessed by the dead demigod. So Pontus gets into a fight with everyone, but Kazina 
got to go first and used her telepathic ability to talk to Pontus. Since Pontus was already kind of turned to be on the PC's side, he was working against the entity that was possessing him. And therefore, for the entire fight, he was at disadvantage for everything that he was doing. However, since I was using a uh, Minotaur Berserker stat block and they can attack recklessly, he still got to attack with a normal role because he was constantly attacking recklessly. He was just never getting advantage for attacking recklessly. I do think it saved our butt, though, that he wasn't rolling everything at advantage. Oh, yeah. And it also meant that everybody that was attacking him had advantage on him, even though his armor class wasn't very high. It was just he's like a big sack of hit points. The Minotaur Berserker stat block that I found, which I actually got from the um, Odyssey of the Dragon Lords book, it allowed him to turn into a bull when he was bloodied. It was a fun stat block to play with. And this was also, you know, PC Minotaurs and NPCs are medium in this setting unless they're possessed by a demigod, in which case they're large. What was particularly fun was at one point right before Gagolana was uh, bloodied, Kazina managed to trip him. And I believe I described tripping him by jumping up behind him, grabbing his horns and yanking backwards so he lost his balance. And it was great. And then he got bloodied and immediately turned into a, a giant bull. <laughs> At which point, Kazina was still on the back of the bull. At the end of the round, she managed to fall off the bull, so she stayed on the bull for six seconds. <laughs> also, there are many Dragon Age Inquisition jokes here in this part. Yeah, Eileen and I are both uh, big Dragon Age fans, so riding the bull has a specific meaning for those who have played Dragon Age Inquisition. Just saying. So Gugalana did a lot of damage just swinging that axe three times around. But when he turned into the bull, he charged Marin and seriously did some damage to Marin. And also his hooves were pretty hefty as well. But on Marin's turn, he managed to take him out. The way he described it was he got the, the trident like under his front legs and then flipped him over on his back because they did not really want to kill Gugalana because they weren't sure what that was going to do to Pontus. Pontus survived and Gugalana was driven out of him. Mazarum has been working on getting a temple and a community center for his dwarves and a kill on for most of the time he's been playing this character. I had already kind of worked this into the plot for something that he was going to get. So now he managed to meet that goal that he's been working towards. And everybody is eighth level now. Also, Mazarum did set all of the souls free to go to their judgment rather than roam the countryside and cause havoc as undead. Yeah, basically, he had three options with the souls. He could either set them loose you know, without any conditions, he could set them loose to be judged, or he could give them a condition that they had to meet before they were freed. And he, being a much nicer person, sent them to the afterlife to be judged. All right, so now let's step into our Dungeon Master's workshop and get to talking about hit points and resurrections. Welcome to the Dungeon Master's workshop. Let's start this off this way. If we're going to talk about healing, we probably need to talk about hit points first. So, and what do you think about the description of hit points, and has it been consistent between editions? The actual description has changed over the decades of D&D's presence in the world, though maybe not as much as it might seem at first. Hit points have always been an abstract representation of how much physical toil a character can take. That is not always how it was handled at the table, though. In my early days of gaming, I can remember GMs taking great care to describe the exact type of damage that the hit point loss caused. I recall that there were even tables GMs could use to tell you exactly what was damaged and how badly. 
Um, in the last 20 years, uh, from third edition through fourth into fifth, there's been a growing acknowledgement beyond the description of what points are that they are a far more narrative reference of how much adventuring a character can do rather than the pure physical representation of the character's health. From my understanding, this was covered in first edition, where it declared that a certain amount of hit points were physical punishment the character could take, but the rest were to represent combat skill and luck. To a certain degree, I suppose this was to explain how a first-level character could have eight hit points and a tenth-level <laughs> character could have 80, and they both existed in the same universe. I mean, I think it's one of those cases where D&D itself has remained pretty consistent, even though it's used different words to express the same concept. The concept has always been that it's a mix of physical health, luck, and vitality, and not just, you know, how much meat there is between you and your chewy center. That said, <laughs> I will admit, like, as a DM, when I want to spice up what combat sounds like, I do fall into that trap of describing every hit as being a hit, because it's hard not to. It is very hard not to. And I think in the olden days, when we were much younger in playing, it was it was hard to abstract what hit points were. So no, it's you took a slash across your middle or you took a burn on your face. You know, it's like very specific physical damage without understanding that this is supposed to be more of an abstract of, you know, how the person handles the fight. Yeah. We should probably also mention how death, i.e. reaching zero hit points, has changed between editions. Uh, in the first edition DMG from 1979, they introduced the optional death store rule. This meant that instead of being instantly dead at zero hit points or less, characters who were reduced to zero hit points lost one hit point per round and were fully dead when they reached negative 10. Second edition had the exact same rule uh, as also optional, but third edition made it a full main game rule instead of something optional. Fourth edition kept the death store rule, but changed the negative you were fully dead at to half the character's hit point max. I suppose in low levels, this was a bit more of a pain because your half your hit point max might be three hit points. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but in later levels, it was probably a bit more forgiving. Um, they also, in fourth edition, introduced the first version of the death saves that we have in fifth edition now. I actually think death saves are a pretty cool rule um, because even in real life, it has been often said that if you can get to somebody quick enough after a traumatic injury they're more likely to survive than not. And I think death saves kind of represent that. You've got three rounds. Well, if you're lucky, three rounds of combat <laughs> where you can stay, you know, your body can stabilize or somebody can get to you or, you know, it's like it's not an instant death thing. Sometimes you can get somebody to you quick enough to, mm. you know, make a difference. I, I also think that the death saves make it a lot more dynamic for someone. Whereas in even in the editions when you were using Death's Door, you were just ticking down one hit point every round until somebody could help you. And the death saves actually change this to you're doing something every round. There's some tension about whether you're going to roll three death saves or whether you're going to roll three right. and stabilize on your own before someone gets to you. Plus, there is that, that, that additional tension of, oh, I rolled a one, that's two failures, or, oh, I rolled a 20, I feel much better, I'm going to stand up now. I did. And oh, sorry, go that ahead. feels so much more dynamic to me. Yeah. I didn't have time to look this up, but I vaguely remember something from third edition about, you know, like taking damage greater than your your constant. 
there was something more about how like like one of the things in fifth edition i know that i have to keep reminding players is like when you are reduced to zero you are reduced to zero you do not go below zero right and that is not the same as in previous editions where right. you could be knocked below zero on the hit that takes you out yeah and also uh third edition had death from massive damage mm-hmm. which i believe was 50 hit points in one shot yeah, it was. I, I know there was something like that because it was always yeah. like, oh no, how much damage did you actually take from that fireball <laughs> or that dragon's breath? All right. So now that we've talked about hit points, what are some changes between editions when it comes to natural healing? Like if there's no magic around, what happens? Oh boy, the changes in natural healing. They are big and drastic and probably way more interesting in how they're different between the editions. In first edition, natural healing was one hit point per day if you were doing absolutely nothing. <laughs> they got generous in second edition and bumped it up to three points per day with the added bonus of your con modifier once per week. I mean, it's kind of no wonder that groups in first and second edition absolutely made somebody play a cleric because yeah. <laughs> without magical healing, your group was stuck sitting there at the inn until everyone was well enough to go back out there (laughs) starting in third edition natural healing was a little bit more reasonably generous with players recovering one hit point per character level per day of light rest or 1.5 hit points per day of bed rest um it got even more generous in 3.5 where they said you just needed a full eight hours sleep to recover the hit points per level um in fourth edition they gave everyone healing surges like the fighter um the only certain martial classes could actually use those in combat. Everyone else had to wait for out-of-combat times to use their healing surges. Um, I believe this is the concept that they modified into the current hit dice mechanic um, for healing unrest that we now use in 5th edition. Yeah, definitely part of what made those earlier editions rough is that if someone didn't have the spell slots to spend on healing, you pretty much had to figure out how to safely retreat, hope you didn't take any more damage, and then hang out at the end for a few weeks between adventures. <laughs> Which the weird thing is, that's probably more realistic. But there's there is that feeling of, do I want this to feel realistic or do I want this to be fun and adventurous and yeah. and an active thing that we're doing? <laughs> and and the thing is too, is like back in the day when we played these rules, like in a movie, yeah, the characters might retreat to the end to recover. But that span of time between when they get to the inn to recover and when they go back out is probably a minute long, you know, montage. (laughs) And like GMs were rarely savvy enough to do that in a first or second edition game, you know, and, and mind you, again, when I was playing first and second edition, it was teenagers and young adults. So when I say savvy, I'm sure there were some GMs out there who were savvy enough to do this. But it's like you want to get to the good stuff. I know it was it was that whole like, well, it says here you're going to take two weeks to heal up. I need to make you feel the two weeks that you can't adventure. (laughs) Which means the players are just more likely to get themselves into trouble and get into a fight they don't have the hit points for anyway. Yep, exactly. All right. So what are some changes between editions when it comes to magical healing? I'm actually not going to answer this question. I'm going to let Jared answer it because... Even though he's asking the questions and I'm usually answering first, most of my experience is pretty much in the modern editions, and he can speak better to older editions than I can on how magical healing worked. When it comes to the literal mechanic of rolling a die and adding those hit points back, that has not changed much at all. 
However, there's a lot of nuance when it comes to those spell slots and how you have access to those spell slots. In Beckme and AD&D 1st and 2nd edition, you literally had to prepare the number of healing spells you thought you were going to use. So if you had four first level uh, slots, unlike in modern D&D, if you wanted to use cure wounds for all of those first level slots, you had to prepare four cure wound spells that day and you could not use any other first level spells. So you had to think ahead and that was your resources that you had had to use there. Didn't matter if there were other cool spells in the book. You Absolutely needed to not. be the walking band-aid. <laughs> um, third edition eased up on this a little bit because clerics got the ability to convert a prepared spell into a cure sp- spell of the appropriate level. But what that kind of did was, even though more classes had access to the cure spells, it still kind of leaned heavily on the cleric is going to be the healer because the cleric could now prepare other neat spells and then watch as they all disappeared while they (laughs) converted them slowly into cure spells. Was it third edition that introduced adding um, the cleric's wisdom modifier to the hit points healed? I don't think um, I'd have to look that up, but I think the cure spells were still just doing a set number that they were healing. But yeah, it, it almost like it was a chance to make things better, except that it only you know, swapped out those cure spells for clerics. So it reinforced the fact that you had to have a cleric if you were going to be the optimum healer. Yeah. Fourth edition, as always, was the outlier because a lot of mechanics changed. Um, Basically, the leader role is where healing resided. And it also really helped to kind of reinforce that idea that you weren't always healing wounds. Sometimes you were just like making sure your people had an adrenaline surge. And what a lot of healing abilities from different classes did was let you spend your healing surges when you normally didn't have access to them. And that's a lot of what classes like the uh, Warlord and the Bard were doing. You know, they were... They weren't necessarily miraculously healing your wounds. They were just making you, you know, not feel it as much and getting back into the fight by spending those healing surges. It was that that pep talk you needed to buck up and get back in there. That moment in in Endgame when (laughs) Captain America tightens his shield on his wrist, gets back in the fight. (laughs) Always comes back to the superhero stuff. It does. (laughs) I do really appreciate the idea of prepared spells being separated from spell slots. Um, but that goes for all spell casting in 5e. I know, I know it probably drives some grognards crazy that love first and second edition where you had to have the economy of knowing which spell exactly to memorize. And then this this is more flexible and more fun. Oh yeah, definitely. And and yeah, that's where we're at in fifth edition now. You can prepare a number of spells, but just because you prepared four first level spells, it doesn't mean you have to cast each one of those spells. You can use whatever slots with whatever spells that you have uh prepared and on top of that the cure spell itself is not a separate spell for each level that does a set number of hit dice it's something that works with the upcasting rules in fifth edition so there's just the cure spell and then you can cast it at fourth level if you want to 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 add extra hit dice to it yep so that makes healing a lot more flexible and also that is how it works for anybody that gets healing so if you're a druid that that's how it works if you're a bard that's how that's how it works so it definitely helps to make healing more effective for whoever is casting it. Yep. And yeah, I was going to say the spell preparation, I love that so much more in 5th edition. That's another one of those reasons why this is like my favorite edition of the game. Because it's like, yes, I will prepare spells. But no, I don't want to tell you exactly how many spells of each level I think I'm going to need every day. <laughs> yeah. And there is still a certain degree of action economy in making sure you have the right spells. Yes. 
prepared because there are certain utility spells that you're not going to have ready for every day of adventuring, but may come in useful at certain points. So you'll be like the, hey, is planning this thing we're going to do tomorrow, I need to rest so I can get this spell ready. Oh, yeah, we've had that come up a few times in the campaign where it's like, I can't do that today. But as soon as we get a chance to where, you know, we can rest, I can I can make that happen. So I think that kind of covers all of that other than where this topic dovetails into other parts of what we're discussing. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So when we're talking about changes between editions, what about raising the dead back to life? And how does that change? Again, this is one I'm going to hand over to Jared to cover the more mechanical side of this. I will say, though, that the difficulty of getting to raise dead or resurrection i.e. As, either as a getting to the level where you can cast it or you have the financial wealth to afford the components to cast it has always made the players in the games I've been in take it very seriously. And I've never played in a game where Raised Dead, Resurrection, or Reincarnation, which we'll get to later, are taken lightly. Definitely. So there's been some weird fiddly changes with Raising Dead, Resurrecting, all of these spells, in part If you go back to first edition, for the fact that Gary would like to let you know how much he didn't like Tolkien that much, there are some weird (laughs) interpretations of Tolkien's work that are very obvious because they go into this idea that elves don't have souls, they have spirits. So certain types of resurrection don't work on elves that do work on uh, that do work on humans And it was just this really weird distinction that doesn't show up except for in a few places where it's literally talking about raised dead and resurrection spells. It's just weird. But the other limiter was that whenever you got raised back to life, you had to make a system shock roll, which means you could be dead, have magical energy infused into you that miraculously brings you back into life. Then you have a heart attack and die again. Also, some sort of level loss attributed to resurrection raised dead? Yes, based on the type of spell that you got. Well, first off, in the earlier editions, it was like you lost a point of constitution. And in earlier editions, when you lost a point of an ability score, you lost a point of an ability score. So, like, if you're a fighter that keeps getting raised back to life, eventually you're going to have something like a seven constitution and your hit points are definitely suffering from all of these times that you've come back to life. Third edition shifted things a little bit to where you were losing character levels and that was not a great way to model (laughs) bringing someone back to life because then it kind of felt like i'm gonna be two levels below everyone and yeah maybe eventually i'll kind of catch up level wise but i'm always going to be behind xp wise and that was also not super ideal but the other thing was, if you did take ability score damage, you could rest and recover that eventually. And this all gets fuzzy depending on whether you use Raise Dead, Resurrection, or True Resurrection, which became three different spells once you get into 3rd edition, <laughs> as opposed to just being Raised Dead and Resurrection that it was in earlier editions. And then we get a very important spell that I actually really like that didn't come about until 3rd edition, and that is Revivify. Revivify is the, the little proto- raise dead that gives you a minute to cast it on someone yep again if you can get to them on the combat field quick enough and that has always been kind of how i feel about revivify i know it technically is saying this character is dead and now they're not dead anymore but i always kind of felt like that was more like you know emergency magical cpr than literally grabbing someone's soul from the afterlife and shoving it back in their body yeah but revivify i think was a big deal because once that entered the game 
you know, that's a third level spell. That means by if you can make it to fifth level, your characters may survive even if they get killed in, a, in an individual fight and your cleric has revivify on them. Whereas previously, if you're looking at raised dead at fifth level, that means you're waiting until ninth level before there's a chance to get your character back if they die in combat. So yeah, there's a lot going on with bringing souls back from the dead. I was actually unaware of that bit about Thygax and his relationship with Tolkien, but I didn't realize <laughs> that bit about the elf soul was like all based on that. Yeah, and it's it's a weird, not to digress into too much Tolkien, but it was the whole idea that in Tolkien's work, elven souls go to, you know, the Grey Havens and they can come back and they're bound to the world, whereas human souls go out into the great beyond and no one knows what happens to them. Again, there are so many things that you shouldn't take out of context from a fantasy work and just shove into a cosmology without thinking about what it does to that cosmology. I mean, that's what all cosmology of early D&D really was, wasn't it? <laughs> it really was. Why do we have to think about what this means? Let's just use it. <laughs> all right. So for a long time, people have regarded clerics as the mandatory party healer due to their ability to heal. Do adventuring parties need to have a designated healer and does it need to be a cleric? I would say in older editions, it pretty much had to be a cleric. By older editions, I mean first and second. And to a certain degree, third, though, I do know some groups that got by with secondary healers. My first Eberron campaign that I played in, we had a cleric, but he was a multi-class cleric, and he was multi-classed with <laughs> Rogue and Dragon Mark Air, so he only had a little tiny bit of cleric. Uh-huh. And it was mostly so he could heal himself. <laughs> So our primary healer was a druid. We also had to stock up on healing potions, mm -hmm. but for the most part, we were able to get by. I do know 4th edition handled stuff completely differently. <laughs> so as long as you had somebody from the leadership role, you generally had healing. Also, there were the healing surges you could use between combats. Yeah. 5th edition is way more flexible. And while a life cleric is always going to be the king of the healing spells, and you will never, ever, ever lose a hit point ever with a healing cleric in your party. You can get by with a druid or a bard or other subclasses. For example, in my City of Cows campaign, where I play Dove, my sorcerer, mm -hmm. we have a cleric. He is a Tempest cleric. He has no interest in healing <laughs> your sorry butt for getting hurt. Meanwhile, we've got a Celestial Warlock who basically has more healing than the cleric and is generally the one that keeps us alive. Yeah, I mean, even like in our Midgard game, I know uh, Brandon is our primary cleric, but Ivy, Eileen's divine soul sorcerer, feels like a cleric a lot of times too because of the access to certain spells that she has. Mazram does the primary healing, but Ivy is always there as the emergency healing and backup. Especially if something decides to uh, squish the clerics. <laughs> squish everybody else <laughs> in the party, but... <laughs> Yeah, and I noticed that too, like in 3rd edition, there wasn't a good single replacement for a cleric, but there were certain, like if you had two people that both had partial healing, you could kind of patch together. Yeah. And on top of that, 3rd edition was weird because you could buy magic items. Even your low-level cleric in the group, you could buy him a scroll of, uh, <laughs> of Raised Dead. <laughs> we also, now that I think about it, we also had a half-bard in the party. Because... <laughs> The only person who was fully single-classed was the druid, and she was magnificent. Everyone else was multi-classed with something. Uh, and we did have a bar, half-bard, half-artificer. So 
We also had some backup healing from him. Now, I think in fifth, you could probably even get away with not having a primary healer as long as the DM is nice enough to make sure that you have provisioning that lets you buy lots of uh, healing potions Mm -hmm. and that they also plan in spots where you can take your short rest so that you can spend your hit dice. Yeah. It only helps when you're talking about hit points. When you're talking about taking conditions, you still need a spellcaster that's going to be able to get rid of conditions that are on you because a lot of those take at least a long rest to get rid of all hail lesser restoration and restoration definitely i think the bard in 5e not counting the one D version <laughs> we're not talking about the one D bard that is a travesty against bards from all editions it, it really including is. the monstrosity that was in first edition <laughs> But yes, the 5e bard, I think, can substitute for a cleric. They get all of the healing spells. They get all of the restoration. They even get, you know, the bringing people back from the dead spells. So a bard is never, ever, no matter what subclass, going to keep up with a life cleric. But if you're just talking about a normal cleric versus a bard, the bard can pretty much do that job in a party. Yeah. Now that we've talked about the mandatory or not nature of uh, clerics. Should cleric players who have a character concept that isn't about healing be expected to still fall back into that role when needed? To a certain degree, this is a conversation that should be had with the group. If the player of a cleric really doesn't want to do any healing, does not want to be responsible for keeping their, their adventuring teammates alive, the group should know that so someone else can pick up the slack if need be or the group understands that they need to have healing potions on hand, just in case. This was kind of how I played Zalus, my Dragonborn Tempest cleric. She always had cure wounds or healing word on hand, but she only resorted to being the primary healer when absolutely necessary. She would much rather spend her magical energies on electrocuting every last bad guy on the field. That was what she was better at doing. I have a personal story when it comes to this. We were playing through Princes of the Apocalypse, and Antares the Scrivener, my beloved cleric of Jurgle, originally started off as a death cleric, because I thought this was going to be so neat to be able to do things like Toll the Dead and then duplicate it to two adjacent people. I was basically going to be a very combat-heavy death cleric, where I'm just going to necromancy the hell out of you. The reason I was going to do this is because one of the other players was playing a Divine Soul Sorcerer. And he thought it was going to be really neat to absolutely spec himself out to be the ultimate healer that was a sorcerer and not a uh, cleric. And then we got into the first couple encounters, and it turned out he really liked blowing things up. (laughs) And he forgot to save any spell slots (laughs) for anyone that managed to get injured or killed. I mean, I can't can't stop him because dropping those, those nukes on everybody is kind of fun. Yeah, especially once you start going like, wow, I could really maximize healing or I could maximize this damage spell I just threw at somebody. (laughs) So because he was having a hard time with his impulse control, my DM let me rebuild Antares and he went from being a death cleric to being a grave cleric. I dearly love grave clerics now, and that's what we have in uh, in our Midgard game right now. I love a lot of the things they get to do. It is not, I'm going to, like, kill half the battlefield with necromancy like I was going for with my death cleric, but there are some really neat things that you can do with a grave cleric, and I would almost say grave cleric is probably the next step down from life cleric as far as being someone that directly contributes to keeping the party alive with the portfolio that you pick for your cleric. 
I would agree with that. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, things like being able to cancel crits on people or, you know, yeah, it's it's awesome. I love playing him. I actually kind of don't regret not playing a Death Cleric after <laughs> I got a chance to play him for 13 levels. All right. So is the current way healing works in D&D too forgiving? And has it been too influenced by media like video games? Those evil, evil things that clearly weren't influenced by D&D in the first place. You know, on one hand, yes, it is too forgiving. Damage is mercurial and rarely impactful on the narrative of the game because it is so easy to recover. Um, I have a friend who grumbles that a crossbow to the face should be deadly, no matter whether you're first level or 10th level. But that's just not how it works in the mechanics. On the other hand, though, I don't want to play a game where we have to deal with gritty combat and damage rules and where recovery will take days and weeks away from the narrative and fun of the game. I like how 5e combat can be challenging, but the characters can bounce back quickly to keep the game moving in a fast and exciting way. I do think that things like exhaustion or the revamped and, in my opinion, improved version from 1D&D <laughs> called Exhausted actually serves to be a more impactful way on general play of the game that can make the narrative feel like you've been at this a while. You know, it's starting to show a toll, you know, wear on you. It's starting to show a toll on you mm -hmm. while still allowing the players to keep moving forward and dealing with the adventure. But maybe having that idea that eh, maybe we should take a break. I definitely think conditions have become more of a lasting thing than hit points have as far as making someone feel like they've been through the ringer. So early on in 5e, I had a group that was really fun to play with, but there were multiple people that were terrible at keeping track of their resources between games. They knew if they ran out of spell slots on game night, but if I asked them in the next session how many spell slots or how many hit dice they had left, they had no idea because they didn't write it down anywhere. <laughs> this was in the early days before D&D Beyond. So, I mean, it's weird, but a lot of 5e happened before D&D Beyond. <laughs> So it didn't matter, you know, it wasn't a matter of not using available tools. They just didn't make notes on their character sheets for things like that. It kind of made me adjust my DMing so that by the end of the session, I was always trying to get them to a place where they could take a long rest. So we just knew, okay, <laughs> we're starting fresh again. <laughs> don't worry, guys. You don't need to take notes. Um, there are times when I kind of wish that 5e was a little bit more gritty, but I have played with um, that dial in previous campaigns. When I ran the Streets of Avalon game, I tried to use the uh, slow healing optional rules in the Dungeon Master's Guide, but pushing things from hours to days and days to weeks, um, it made it really hard for anything in the campaign to feel like it was time sensitive, because if the PCs got beat up, they couldn't get back resources unless they let whatever was going on go on for a week without them investigating it or stopping it. And that it didn't feel gritty. It just felt like a weird time constraint that you snapped on on top of what you were doing. Speaking of that second edition GM wanting to make you feel the two weeks you were spending at the inn and healing. Yeah. And that's and really, like I said, because it was an optional rule in there, I was like, oh, let's try this out. And I, I don't I don't think it worked that well. However, in the runes of Symbarum, uh, 5e player's guide which Symbarum is a whole separate rpg but there is a 5e version of it and there is a neat mechanic in there which is the extended rest short rest work the same way long rest work will reset your class and ancestry abilities but you don't get back your hit dice or your hit points until you take an extended rest and an extended rest is 24 hours of rest when you don't do anything else i kind of want to give this a whirl in a campaign sometime because you can still let your PCs find places to rest to reset their abilities. 
but they aren't necessarily getting all of their hit points back every time because you can easily say you're not getting 24 hours of meaningful rest out in the wild or in a dungeon. And I honestly, I think that works better than that uh, optional rule in the DMG. What considerations have to be made for the way hit dice and hit point acquisition work on a long rest when you're running an adventure? I think the most important thing a GM needs to keep in mind is how long the players can go before they need to take that long rest. I have found that three to four encounters is what a group can generally handle before things start to get desperate. Um, If the GM makes it too difficult to take a short rest to get those hit dice or a long rest to recharge spells and abilities, that can overwhelm the group or make them start to turtle up. And other than a base-loving turtle, I don't want my players to turtle. Yay, callback. (laughs) Yeah, long rests are tricky. I think if you as a DM are planning on having your PCs explore like a really big area, you need to build in some places where in your mind you're thinking, this is where they get to take the long rest. I don't think you need to accommodate them taking a long rest whenever they want to, because that eliminates a lot of challenges but i think almost using it as a resource is important you know having the space that once they use it maybe they won't be able to use it again but when they get desperate they can retreat to this place and catch their breath for eight hours and head back out now after that you might need to get some story buy-in so that they can't just go back to that area maybe that safe area collapses the doors get battered down or something decides to make that safe spot a lair But I think building it into where it's at least an option for them to do it once is probably a good thing anytime you're looking at keeping PCs in an extended area for a long time. Yeah. All right. Let's get into the big questions here. Is it too easy to come back from the dead in D&D? And how can you make death more meaningful without removing raised dead as an option in the game? I kind of go back and forth on this one. While the idea of raised dead and resurrection does change how players approach the game, It's not something I've actually seen affect play that often. I'll talk a bit more about this on the next question, but the material components can be a bit prohibitive in their cost. The level to get to those spells is kind of prohibitive, and I think healing in 5e generally makes them less necessary. They tend to come up more as narrative tools in 5e from my experience. Yeah, um, this is really funny because when you talk about material opponents, this is something I have so often asked about material components in the context of Raised Dead because, and I've never really got a definitive answer because there is a slight nuance between this. Is the material component being a 1,000 gold piece diamond saying that if the PCs have 1,000 gold pieces and access to a city, they should be able to get the 1,000 gold piece diamond? Or is that giving the DM permission to use DM Fiat and say, nope, there's no diamonds around, you can't get that material component? So in other words, is the diamond just a fancy thing that sounds good for story reasons and the spell could just say a thousand gold pieces of expendable material components? Or is it literally that you want it to be this one thing that the DM can hold back from time to time? (sighs) Yeah. The thing is, I've asked this to designers and designers are even kind of tricky to dance around that one. Um, I don't know if Raised Dead is too common in D&D. I'm not much of a killer DM. Unless you're running a playtest. Unless I'm running a playtest, in which case I will I will grind you down into, into the ground and laugh heartily as I do it. <laughs> but <laughs> it's pretty traumatic the few times that I have killed a PC and not a player. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> We always must make that distinction. Yes. We here on Thacko with Advantage do not encourage you to kill your players. <laughs> Even when it has happened, it's been pretty traumatic. If the PCs, you know, have to be brought back from the dead. As much as I like to think about that encounter with the uh, 
the Red Wizard of Thay that killed uh, 50% of the party in, in the one game. <laughs> that was great. Um, one thing that I do like to do whenever a character dies in a game is to roleplay their arrival in the afterlife. For example, in the Forgotten Realms, that soul is going to show up in the fugue plane. They're going to be standing there waiting in line either for their god to come take them to their afterlife or for Kalimbor to judge them. While they're in line, devils from the Nine Hells are contractually allowed to try and tempt them while they're still standing in line. And demons, while not allowed in the fugue plane, will occasionally make raids if the lines get too long. I want to paint that picture of the afterlife so that it is something that is in the PC's head to where it's not just that you as a player didn't get to touch your player character for a while. Something has metaphysically happened to that character because they died. That's pretty cool, though. I like that because it gives some added like narrative weight to your character died because if you're just playing a we hunt monsters and punch them in the face murder hobo game dying really sucks because it's just okay it's all over now but if you're actually playing a game with some story to it it can have a little more meat oh yeah all right so um being that we are dms and we like our story as well as mechanics does resurrection change how cultures should regard death in a DD setting actually only ever seen Resurrection in play a handful of times in the games I've played. One was with Zalus, my Tempest cleric, promising the soul stuck inside of her ring of mind shielding that she would try and do right by his family for him because he had been murdered and his ring stolen from him. For her, that meant finding where his body was buried. She basically bullied one of the people that knew he had been murdered into going back to where his body was buried and finding her a finger bone, no matter what it took. And that was... It was it was fun getting to play Zalus as the big tough ordering somebody around that she would have, you know, given her life to keep safe because the character was sweet. She just was involved <laughs> with bad people. She basically got the finger bone. She got to the level where she could cast it and she got the material components to do it, went back to where his family was, raised him a short distance away and then guided him home to his family to be like, here. He was just lost for a little while, <laughs> you know, and that was a whole ongoing storyline in the campaign from probably about third level to ninth level. You know, it was a long expanse of time where Zalus was quietly working on this, knowing this was her intention to save his soul so he could be with his family because he was not going to leave the ring until he knew his family was safe. Resurrection is a very expensive spell, and it is not available to anyone. To a certain degree, I guess this means it's pretty classist, and you could play with that in a campaign setting. Yeah. Perhaps cultures in D&D would be less surprised if a famous wealthy royal came back from the dead, but to most people in the game, resurrection is not a thing that is available to anyone. What's more impactful is probably the magical healing that even a low-level cleric or druid could do that is still relatively rare to the general citizenry of a game. In our City of Cowles campaign, Tristan really leaned into this when Modrin, our celestial warlock, went to the local church of Pelor after a hurricane had swept through the city and a lot of people were hurt, and he basically went through the church healing the afflicted. Mm -hmm. And this suddenly turned him into a revered figure that the peasantry would basically worship and ask for his blessing. And and he started having to be careful about where he went or he would be swarmed with people looking for, you know, looking for his healing, you know. And that was an interesting effect to just, hey, I'm somebody who can heal. I'm going to go heal some people. You know, it's like you play with this in the narrative of the setting so that it makes sense. 
Yeah, and I, that was one of the things I was going to touch on, too, is that even, you know, like in 5th edition, they've kind of hammered home, like, not all clergy are clerics. And even at that, you probably don't have people that are even, like, ninth level that have stuff that can bring people back from the dead. You're, most of the clerics, even if your general population knows of one, isn't going to be doing the big, flashy, over-the-top things. Especially Resurrection, since that's, like, the big gun. That's the one where... The time limit generally isn't a problem. You just need some part of the body. On one hand, that can be a game changer, but I also think that that's something that is only going to be done by people that are so powerful that I don't think it changes the culture that much. Right. Unless you're talking about who they bring back, <laughs> which is you know one of the things that you touched on there. And the other thing that actually goes for all of these spells that I don't see come up much especially when people try and rationalize how it will affect their game world is if the spirit doesn't want to come back, you can't bring them back to life. Yeah. There are going to be people that get to that afterlife that are going to be like, I'm here now. <laughs> this is it. You know, if you're a dwarf and you want to become one of those revered ancestors that you know all of your family members ask for advice, are you abandoning them by coming back to life? If you're a, a halfling that has died and you, you get raised, are you abandoning the hospitality of the halfling gods that invite you to the, uh, to, to the big uh, potluck. And I mean, there's also the aspect of, you know, your life on the mortal plane was kind of crap. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, let me enjoy the afterlife for a little while. Uh, one of the things that I did kind of like about Resurrection is, and I haven't seen a lot of people point this out, but there's some bits of lore in the Forgotten Realms where most kingdoms have adopted that if your ruler gets resurrected, they are not in line for the throne. Unless there's, like, literally no one left of, uh, you know, to inherit the throne. Because basically, they don't care if you're going to magically stay young as long as you can. Once you die, that's it. You got to pass on the throne. Doesn't matter if you can come back or not. And I always kind of like that idea because, yes, you're going to have some jerks that want those potions of longevity to stay alive as long as possible. But once they go past that point, they're just going to be some rich person that never has the reins of power again. Um, I do think Resurrection is one of those spells that works much better as a plot device, though, because this is one of those ways that your evil NPCs can say, if I can just get back the skull of so-and-so, I can bring back this, you know, this evil cult leader that was around 10 years ago that almost brought the kingdom to their knees. And that is a great plot point to, to throw in there. All right. We've talked about things like Revivify and Raise Dead and all of that. Hey, is the randomness of reincarnation fun? Let me tell you about a game. Way back in that original Eberron campaign I was playing in in the mid-aughts, we had a situation where our characters were visiting a gnome halfling village in Zalargo and a band of lizardmen led by a troll that was hunting us attacked the village. It was an epic fight, uh, but some of the villagers were killed. Uh, <laughs> we felt very bad about this, and Amber, our shifter druid, the only person in the party who was a single class, had recently <laughs> gotten to the level where she had access to reincarnation. So she offered to cast it on their lost loved ones. We very carefully explained to the villagers that we couldn't guarantee their gnome patriarch would come back as a gnome patriarch, but it would bring their soul back to life. Sure enough, they said yes, and one of those gnomes came back as a half-orc. So we had a scene where a six-foot-something half-orc was standing there staring down as his three-foot-something gnomish wife as she gave an exasperated sigh going, Okay, we'll figure it out. <laughs> I find that reincarnation gets used rarely, uh, and it can make a player really hesitate at having to change species. 
But it can be a fun narrative when it crops up in game. Like I said, if it's being used on a PC, uh, a lot of people don't necessarily want to change their species because it's an integral part of that character's identity. Yeah, it's definitely something that people plan for. I've seen players that would rather let their characters die if uh, reincarnation is their only way to bring that character back. Not because they hate all of their options, but just because they are started learning who their character is, and that's an aspect of that character, and that forces a change on them that they really weren't planning on making. I think any amount of random chaos can be fun as long as everybody buys into it. That said, the story of reincarnation in D&D, like what it says about the overall setting, is weird to me. Because it's not saying you're making sure the soul gets reincarnated because that doesn't do you any immediate good because that's just going to say, yeah, the next time somebody's born, the soul will come back. Next baby is this one. Yeah. So the actual story and literally what the spell says is you summon an adult body that doesn't have a soul. You insert the soul and they're back. And that doesn't feel like the (laughs) point of reincarnation to me. (laughs) It just I, I wish there was a little bit more story like. Maybe you can only bring them to the present from the future for a certain period of time, or I don't know. It's just, it's a, it's such a weird narrative because it's literally using the term reincarnate. We will incarnate you in a new body, but not in any way that almost any religion would recognize. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, when all you got is a druid, I guess all dead bodies look like resurrection. I, I was trying to do the hammer nail thing and it didn't really work real well with that analogy. <laughs> Yeah, the druid doesn't care. Like, whatever, you've got two legs, you've got two arms, you've got a mouth, shut it. Be be happy. (laughs) Unless you use, like, a chart that has centaurs, in which case you got four legs now. Yeah, four legs. (laughs) legs. (laughs) No time for rest, you two. Get on with your downtime research. Every episode, we're going to look for something related to D&D that we want to pass along to our listeners. Might be podcasts, websites, videos, or podcasts. Wait, did we say podcast twice? You did. But it will always be something <laughs> we think will enhance your D&D experience. All right. Um, so all of the Kickstarters ever launched this week. <laughs> I'm going to take a small sampling of them that I think especially D&D players might be interested in looking at. And we'll have the uh, links in the show notes. So basically the ones I'm going to bring up, uh, Deep Magic 2 has come out from Cobalt Press. And not only is this going to have like a ton of new spells like the original Deep Magic did, but they're also going to be including a few new classes in this, like the Witch and the Thaumaturge. And on top of that, this is going to be a product that's going to give a sneak peek at the Black Flag rules that they are developing, because some of this content is meant to be compatible with Black Flag. So that could be an interesting thing to get your eyes on and figure out you know maybe what that's going to look like in the future whenever you finally get it but i do like the extra classes that they're talking about and who doesn't like a bunch of new spells the oracle character generator for fantasy rpgs from nord games launched and i've already like talked about the oracle story generator and i have a review up on gnome stew and i love that so i kind of want to see what it's like to have these decks that you use to get ideas to build a character So that's one to check out. Dungeon Denizens by Goodman Games is not started yet, but it will be. Maybe not by the time this drops, but eventually. And basically, this is Goodman Games making a bunch of monsters for 5e. These same monsters are going to be available for DCC, which means these are going to be some kind of gonzo (laughs) over-the-top dungeon-dwelling creatures, and I'm really interested to see how that goes. Um, I I really kind of want to see... 
how that looks when you translate something that has been designed for both DCC and D&D, what that ends up making the D&D monster look like. So that will be coming up too. And then finally, the uh, Grim Hollow Valakin clan by Ghostfire Gaming is going to be coming up. That is specifically looking to flesh out the uh, Viking area of their Grim Hollow setting. I think that one's going to be an interesting thing one to look at. All of these are either ongoing or they haven't started yet. By the time this drops, there should be at least a week left in any of these that I've mentioned that have launched. So for my part, let's talk conventions. While this isn't a specific plug for any specific convention, now is the time to start thinking about and planning which ones you might want to go to. I actually have a small one coming up the weekend after this episode drops, so I will be at Running Gag in Geneseo, New York. So if you're there, stop by and say hi. <laughs> the two big ones coming up for tabletop role-playing games are Origins in Columbus, Ohio, June 21st through 25th, and Gen Con in Indianapolis, Indiana, August 3rd through 6th. I will definitely be at Origins, but I'm not likely to be at Gen Con unless I win the lottery between now and then. <laughs> I highly recommend keeping an eye out for cons that are local to you or within a distance you're willing to travel. I will likely be mentioning some of the ones I'll be attending as we make our way through 2023. Vengeance are one of the things I love in this world. Uh, there's almost always D&D available to play at cons, but you can also try out some other games to get a feel for what else you might want to play or run. And on top of all that, I think the housing portal opened for uh, Gamehole Con. Oh, did it? I think so, yeah. I want to go to that one so bad. I know. I just can't quite justify the cost. <laughs> Goddamn inflation. But that's like one of the few that we might both have a shot at showing up at at the same yeah, time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. All right. We are happily part of the Misdirected Mark Productions Network, so we wanted to give a shout out to another MMP show. If you're enjoying our show, also consider checking out Misdirected Mark. Phil, Chris, Bob, and Jerry break down and get inside games, game mastering, playing games, and game design in an effort to entertain and inform you. I loved listening to the uh, 500th episode and hearing uh, Phil talk about how he didn't realize it was named after a 4th edition bard pal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. All right, we've used up all of our resources, so I think it's time for a long rest. I hope this adventure was rewarding to you, and we hope you'll go exploring with us when we start our next adventure. Yay!